We continue on in terms of our series. We are in Mark chapter 3 this morning, starting a new section in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Give careful attention to the holy word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed against him to touch him, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful through thy spirit you have made thy son known unto us this morning we ask O God that our hearts would be replenished refreshed and that we would have our eyes continually set upon the redeeming work that is found only in Jesus Christ bless us this day in Christ, in Christ's name, amen. No time to fast for his disciples. The bridegroom is here. It is time for the Lord of the Sabbath to go forth with his disciples to provide the ministry that the Sabbath is made for man. As the ministry of the Lord of the Sabbath was anticipated in the synagogue in Capernaum in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, Now, here in this section, in this previous section of what we saw, chapter 2, 1 through 3, 6, the Lord of the Sabbath is more fully revealed in anticipation of the final Sabbath rest of heavenly glory. Indeed, redeemed tax collectors and sinners recline at the table of the wedding feast of the bride and the bridegroom with new wine dressed in garments of Christ's righteousness. Then, as we saw in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we return to the synagogue on the Sabbath. 
there, Jesus crystallizes the final Sabbath as the place where the goodness of God and the salvation of lives are ultimately revealed. It is revealed in the imagery of Jesus' power of resurrection in restoring the man with his withered hand. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, performs a miracle, performs this miracle as a picture of the future anticipation of the final Sabbath for his chosen people. The Son of Man performs his wonderful act upon the man's withered hand, while at the same time, the judgment of absolute silence overcomes the wicked hearts of Jesus' hostile opponents, the Pharisees, then joined by the Herodians. Our text before us this morning is Mark taking his reader into the everyday ministry of Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. Follow the progression of the narrative. If we have grasped the message of the five narratives from chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 6, then it is as if the new Sabbath, the resurrection day, the Lord's day, is already here. It is as if the resurrection of Christ has already occurred and we are entering into Jesus' ministry through his Holy Spirit to the New Testament church. However, there is one incredible twist here. As Mark places the reader in the foretaste of Jesus' future post-resurrection ministry, Jesus is very much present still in Mark's narrative. Of course he is. Of course Jesus is still present in the narrative. Jesus is, the very, is very much present still in this narrative because the bridegroom is present with his disciples and his church preaching the good news, the gospel of God, which totally resides in him. Remember, that key verse in that whole section from 2.1 through 3.6 is 2.9. The bridegroom is always present, always present with his church. Please stay with me here, please, and grasp what Mark is doing with his fascinating story about your Jesus. Let this be wonderful medicine to your souls and encourage all of us concerning the ministry of Christ's church. The ministry of Jesus, beginning with chapter 3, verse 7, through at least chapter 6, verse 13, is a copy a reproduction, a replica of the ministry of Christ's church 
from the time after Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection and his ascension until his second coming. But here is the incredible point for us. Jesus is going to personally walk our path, the path that we are presently walking as the church of Jesus Christ. Are you grasping the power of this? Are you understanding the depth of this picture? Jesus' life is the life of the church. Jesus' life is the life of the church. Jesus lives the life of the church prior, prior to the New Testament living her life. The New Testament church living her life. He knows every aspect of the life of the bride, our life. The reception of his preaching through repentance and faith. In contrast, Jesus knows the rejection of his preaching by callous and hard-hearted hearts. There will be followers who will be faithful. In contrast, there will be followers who want the gifts, but not the giver. There are those who will withstand hostility and persecution. But in contrast, those who will run from suffering for the gospel, including, including two men that Jesus actually ordained into service. Peter, by denial, who will be recovered, and Judas, who will be a betrayer and will not be recovered. As our text in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 begins, the next major section in Mark's gospel, are you, are we, the church of Jesus Christ, ready to join the spirit that is in you with the Holy Spirit, who is the final author of Mark's words. Are you ready to live a life or the life of discipleship? Are you ready to understand the cost of discipleship? Jesus is about to map out what it means and what it looks like to be a suffering servant in Christ's kingdom and church. Once again, are you ready to follow? Are you ready to follow? I cannot exaggerate 
Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 11, as a path of servanthood and discipleship in the life of the church and the life of the believer. Paul counts everything as loss, counts all things as rubbish, that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I, Paul, may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right here in front of you in those very words in Philippians, right there, Mark's gospel is taking the format of Paul's comments in Philippians 3, 10 through 11. Apply, interest, apply Paul's words to the ministry of Jesus before your eyes in Mark's unfolding narrative. In Mark chapter 2, 1 through 3, 6, Mark is essentially speaking of Jesus from the position of a post-resurrection glory, the feast of the bridegroom and his bride. And now, starting in chapter 3, verse 7, our text that is before you this morning, Mark places you, you the reader, into the daily grind the daily grind of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is a pilgrim enduring, going back to that Philippians passage, enduring suffering, moving towards his death in order to attain his resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling us that the life of Christ's church will follow the exact same pattern. The exact same pattern. The ministry of Christ's church lives out of the power of Christ's resurrection. And it's through the power of his resurrection that we, the church, will be able to share in his sufferings. The persecutions of the church is the persecutions of Christ's body. It is the abuse of the bride. In this calling, the church becomes like him in his death in order to attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus lives the pattern first. Then we, the church, live the same pattern in union with him through the power of the resurrection and the application of the Holy Spirit. Congregation, (laughs) do we not tend to think, 
because of our sincere reverence for our Savior, that the ministry on earth of Christ was wonderful. It was ideal. It was utopian. I wish I was there, if you say in your own hearts. Everything went so well. It was perfect. Well, as we have already seen in Mark's gospel, it is not that way at all. His ministry was confronted with every kind of evil that you can imagine. It is a ministry of misunderstanding, rejection, suffering, and death. Can we, can you, handle the cost of being a servant of the Lamb of God who, in quoting Isaiah 53, is led to the slaughter. Can you handle that cost of being Jesus' servant? Well, (laughs) suffering church of Christ, as we begin to look closely at our text We are reminded to go back to our introductory sermons in Mark's gospel. Remember the order of the New Testament books from Matthew to Mark. Matthew ends with the great commission that the gospel is to go into all the world. Mark's gospel follows as the gospel of evangelism by the evangelist Mark. Right off the bat, he informs his readers that his book is about the beginning, in verse 1 of this gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. After Jesus is baptized and is tempted by Satan, Jesus began proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God in Galilee. Where's Galilee again? It is in Gentile country. Very significant. Very significant. Of whom he is its central message for the entrance of into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Consistent with Mark's message as an evangelist is an application of the great commission in the very ministry of Jesus. The first disciples are called besides the Sea of Galilee, back in terms of Gentile country. And Jesus tells Simon and Andrew that he will make them fishers of men. Chapter 1, verse 16. The good news is going to go to all people who are not just Jews. It is going to go into Gentile country. You see, congregation, in Mark's eyes, in Mark's eyes, that this 
Let this come into your hearts. Jesus is the evangelist. Jesus is the evangelist. And he is collecting his team of evangelists, the disciples. Well, you do not want to miss the opening there in chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, the text says. Two points here. First, the sea itself becomes in Mark a place where Jesus and the disciples have a common place of meeting. Chapter 1, verse 16, he calls the first four disciples from the context of by the sea. 2.13, Levi, the disciple, is called as he is by the sea. And here now in our text, chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus and the disciples withdraw to the sea. And secondly, the sea for Mark serves as a familiar theme that we have noticed about the wilderness, a place of Jesus' withdrawal. In 116, Jesus moves from proclaiming the gospel to withdraw by the sea, calling his first disciples. In 213, Jesus moves from the crowded house preaching and healing the paralytic to withdraw by the sea where the crowd comes to hear his teaching. And there he passes signally by Levi and calls him as a disciple. Then in 37, In our text, he withdraws with his disciples from the synagogue in the hostility of his critics and moves to a more contented place, the sea. But notice the transition from the Baptist in the wilderness to Jesus by the sea. The transition in Mark's narrative from wilderness to the sea. Indeed, someone has arrived who is mightier, mightier than the Baptist. With the Baptist, the Jews are the focus from Judea and Jerusalem coming to him by the river Jordan in the wilderness. Remember, John is the last Old Testament prophet preparing the world for the way of the Lord, the time, the kingdom of the time of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, which is about to be visibly and visibly explode into the creation by the mightier one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The transition from the old to the new is here. Are you grasping what is happening in our text? The crowd following Jesus is not just concentrated upon the Jewish populated areas. As we saw there in John's baptism. 
Rather, the areas are expanded. Are you noticing that in the text? The areas are expanded to include areas where the Jewish population is mixed with Gentiles. With Gentiles. Galilee. Then, yes, Judea and Jerusalem. But in Yumea, it is the only time in the entire Bible that that geographical location is stated. It's the place of the Edomites in the south. Then we go beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon. Is it clear now? In our text, Jesus is launching a microcosm of the Great Commission. The good news of the kingdom is here in him. He is the evangelist of this gospel. And it is going into the world, going to Jew and Gentile, the nations. Jesus is living the ministry of the church Prior to the church, he lives the ministry of the church prior to the church being launched into her own life on the day of Pentecost. Don't miss that those called to be fishers of men are right there beside him. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation of his body. And he is teaching and training the future pillars of the church, his disciples. By directing our attention upon Jesus' ministry, we, the church, can understand what to expect in our own ministry as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, Mark, what is Mark pictured right off the bat? What is the picture that he gives to us right off the bat? The crowd is attracted to the gifts of the kingdom without understanding the giver. That is understanding the true identity of who Jesus is. Although Jesus pours out his marvelous love pity and compassion upon the crowd by healing many of them. Verse 10 of our text. You notice that Jesus is not, is not entrusting himself to the crowd. He has the disciples ready with a boat in order to escape just in case the crowd begins to crush him. Verse 9. Jesus truly knows the hearts of the crowd. They are earnest to have their physical, 
earthly needs taken care of without really addressing their spiritual needs. In the church, in the church, many will follow Jesus in order to serve their own personal needs, to have a better life, better health, better success in all their endeavors. But in reality, in reality, their hearts have never been transformed into discovering that the chief end of their existence is to glorify and enjoy the triune God forever. Not all Israel is Israel. Moreover, it is interestingly that Previously, we noted that Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law and the leper, and they were healed. Now notice in the text, now the crowd is pictured as pressing around him to touch him. Verse 10. (laughs) The word is out. The word is out. If you just get to touch Jesus, if you just touch him, you can be healed of your disease. Again, who cares who Jesus actually is? (laughs) I can get rid of my ills of my physical body if I just just touch him. Yes, Jesus came into the world to serve But many want that service without being a true repentant sinner for their most serious spiritual needs and believing in Christ as the Son of God. Did you hear what I just said? Do you remember how that section in 2, 1 through 3, 6 begins? It begins with the healing of the paralytic. Who Christ, what? First of all, forgives their sin, his sin, and then heals him. What comes first? The forgiveness of sin and then healing. For the crowd, it's the other way around. (laughs) Heal my body, then maybe I'll repent. (laughs) Maybe I'll come to Jesus. Maybe eventually I'll figure it all out. See what Mark is doing terms of the construct of his narrative. It's genius. It's genius. He's showing what the true church needs. It needs the ministry of Christ 
in terms of forgiveness of sin as the priority. But this is not all. Jesus also will have to confront those who reference Jesus' identity as the Son of God, but refuse to believe in him. Yes, the opposition of Satan's minions, those unclean spirits, will confront Jesus in his earthly ministry. Verse 11 of our text, as they admit that Jesus is the Son of God, they are in violation of a true understanding of Jesus' self-revelation, and thus Jesus tells them not to make him known. Why? Doesn't it sort of say in your mind, man, if, if Satan's minions will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, isn't that a great proof that he is the Son of God? Wouldn't Jesus want Satan's people to identify him in terms of who he truly is? You see, why does Jesus tell them To be silent because they are opponents of Jesus. They hate Jesus and his gospel. They are the violators of true religion. In contrast, in contrast, The true confession of Jesus as God's Son is pronounced positively, positively by His Heavenly Father, accompanied by the Holy Spirit back there in chapter 1, verse 11, at the time of His baptism. Jesus does not want any public affirmation that He is the Son of God that does not Come from the revelation of his Father and the Holy Spirit to the church or in an individual person. The unclean spirits, yes, as we have said in a previous message, have an intuitive supernatural knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is used to undermine the gospel and the work of Jesus. Jesus wants nothing, wants nothing of their statement of him being the Son of God going into the public sphere. Why? Because they are advocates of unbelief. Unbelief. In contrast, the evangelistic message of the gospel of God must be Good news. It must be good news to the ears that hear the gospel found in Jesus. Furthermore, the church of Jesus Christ must never permit 
the satanic opposition of Jesus, the Son of God, to enter the feast of the bridegroom and the bride, which every one of us presently enjoy. That's what we enjoy as a believers. As we live, key here, in covenantal withdrawal. In covenantal withdrawal from the wickedness of the world. In repentance and faith, we, all of us here this morning, confess with such overwhelming hearts Overwhelming, overwhelming hearts of love. Jesus, the Son of God. Is that your confession? Is that your confession? By the revelation of the Father and the Holy Spirit in his word into your heart. Then rejoice. Rejoice in your heart. The evangelist's message has found a glorious, glorious residence in your hearts, our hearts, and lives. The life of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for Jesus, for his coming. We are thankful that that evangelistic message of the gospel has reached our hearts. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would continue to hear and to listen, and that by thy Spirit we would live faithfully before thee, we ask, O oh Lord, that Jesus would continue to be the light of life unto each of our paths. In Christ's name, amen.